Good evening. Please turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. Deuteronomy, chapter 5. The sermon text this evening comes from Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 6 through 33, the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your great gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as you and as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, While the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord your God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen your God speak with man and still live, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all the flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord your God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as is, 
as this always, to fear me and to keep my, all my commandments, that it may go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. If you have your Trinity hymnal, please turn with me to the back on page 951. 951, question 99, where we've been going through the Westminster Larger Catechism, select places. Question 99 says this on page 951, what rules are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments? For the right understanding of the Ten Commandments, these rules are to be observed that the law is perfect and bindeth everyone to full conformity in the whole man unto the righteousness thereof and unto entire obedience forever, so as to require the utmost perfection of every duty and to forbid the least degree of every sin. Two, that it is spiritual and so reacheth the understanding, will, affections, and all other powers of the soul as well as words, works, and gestures. Three, that one and the same thing in diverse manners is required or forbidden in, the several com- in several commandments. Four, that as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden, and where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. So where a promise is annexed, the contrary threatening is included. Where a threatening is annexed, the contrary promise is included. Five, that what God forbids is at no time to be done. What he commands is always our duty, and yet every particular duty is not to be done at all times. Six, that one sin or duty, that under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded, together with all causes, means, occasions, and appearances thereof, and provocations thereunto. Seven, that what is forbidden or commanded to ourselves, we are bound according to our places to endeavor that it may be avoided or performed by others according to the duty of their places. Number eight, that in what is commanded to others, we are bound according to our places and callings to be helpful to them and to take heed of partaking with others in what is forbidden to them or what is forbidden them. This evening, we are taking a look at the Ten Commandments. It's always a danger when looking at the Ten Commandments to take them out of their context of a relationship with God and take them out of the context of a relationship with Christ. If you hear nothing else in the sermon tonight, hear this, that you cannot understand, much less obey the Ten Commandments without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to understand who Christ is and what he's done in order to put the Ten Commandments in its proper context. So tonight, I want to do two main things. One, give some, answer some general questions about the Ten Commandments. And two, give us 
some general rules for interpreting or understanding the Ten Commandments. So answer some general questions, give some general rules. That's what I I want us to do. And if it sounds a little bit academic, I apologize. But this past week was a busy one for me as I was at Presbytery. So please bear with me. One first question I would have is, how are we to understand the laws, not only of the Ten Commandments, but of the Old Testament? In the Reformed tradition, there have been three ways of understanding the Old Testament laws. John Calvin calls them the three uses of the law. The first use is that it is a mirror. In other words, it shows us our need. It shows us how far we fall short. So in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says that if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. R.C. Sproul says this, once we look into the perfect mirror, once we examine the law of God, we are devastated because we see the darkness of our sin against the standard of perfect righteousness. We don't always enjoy looking at mirrors. We often don't like what we see as it relates to our physical appearance. Perhaps that's one reason we avoid the law of God. We don't want to look in that mirror. The mirror of the law of God is bad news. But until we look at ourselves in it, we will never understand the goodness of the good news. The one use of the law in the Old Testament is as a mirror. It shows us our sinfulness. But another use is that it restrains wickedness. Okay, it it restrains evil. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, that God gives the power of the sword to human governments to restrain evil. For if evil is unbridled and unrestrained, society is impossible and civilization becomes barbarian. One use of the Old Testament law, particularly the moral law, I'll speak about that in a minute, is that it restrains wickedness. And therefore, when civil governments uphold the moral law of the Old Testament, it's restraining evil. But the third use of the law is this. It, it reveals to us uh, that we, it's a guide to us how we are to live our life. Now, to put it in an analogy, when you get married, you say vows, right? When you get married, you don't say, oh, I've, I've married this woman, and it's great. Now I can do whatever I want. I can have a relationship with whoever I want. No, you get married, and you say vows and say, this is now how I want to live my life in exclusivity with you. In the same way, in a relationship with Christ, we are, there are guides or commands how we are to live our life. The gospel comes with a, therefore, you are to live in this way. Since Christ has done this for you, therefore, you are to live in this way. Or to put it differently, this is what R.C. Sproul says, in the new covenant, there are those in Christ who've been redeemed from the curse of the law. We know that we can't be redeemed by counting on our good works or obedience, but we also know that we've been redeemed unto righteousness and that the goal of the Christian life is righteousness. How do we know what righteousness looks like? We must look at the brightest and clearest revelation of righteousness, which is found in the law of God. Therefore, uh, the law drives us to Christ. It gives us a guide of how we are to live. Now, what law am I talking about? Because the Old Testament comes with many different laws. 
Typically, the way it's been understood, are there are, there are civil laws, laws governing the, the, the nation of Israel. There are ceremonial laws, laws of purification, that sort of thing. And there are moral laws. Now, which of those three are the Ten Commandments? Are they civil, ceremonial, or moral? Well, they are moral. Now, they have certain ceremonial aspects, but the moral components of the Ten Commandments uh, are abiding. Now, I'm, I'm going to take a number of questions. I'm going to answer a number of questions. I'm, I'm drawing from a lecture that I heard from Carlton Wynn at Westminster Theological Seminary. He was one of my professors there. I, uh, he's a, an ordained minister and professor uh, in the PCA. First of all, do we still keep the Ten Commandments? Are they still binding on, a, on us? Yes. Yes, they are. The ceremonial laws have passed away since Christ has come as the fulfillment. The civil laws of the nation of Israel have passed away, except for the general equity. There's certain general equity principles of the, the laws of the Old Testament, uh, of the civil laws of the Old Testament that are abiding. But the moral laws are meant for us to keep. They are enduring, okay? The, the very fact that God uttered these and he wrote his, his commandments on two tablets of stone means that they're permanent. <laughs> the, the stone is meant to, to illustrate the enduring quality of the Ten Commandments, okay? But the Ten Commandments also come to us in the context of a relationship. It's a covenant. It's even, that word covenant is even used both in Exodus 34 and, Ex- and Deuteronomy 4. In Exodus 34, it says this, So Moses was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. But what kind of covenant is it? Is it a gracious covenant? Is it a a covenant that uh, promotes a works-based righteousness? There are some who believe that the Ten Commandments are essentially a re-uttering of what God gave to Adam and Eve. The fancy theological terms, I don't like to be too academic, but the fancy term is that it's a republication of the covenant God made with Adam, or the covenant of works. And if Adam had not eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have been confirmed in righteousness. But we know that Adam fell. So is this law that was given on Mount Sinai, is this in some ways a works-based righteousness kind of covenant? And the answer to that is no, it is not. It is not, strictly speaking, in substance, another re-uttering of the covenant of works. Now, there are some similarities, and I'm going to go into that, but it's not promoting a way of salvation apart from Christ, okay? One way of, of answering that, what kind of covenant is it, is the fact that when it's given, that one way to answer it is to look at the, the prologue. The prologue is this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, if you remember the story, God brought his people out of Egypt and then he brought them to the place where he would give them the law. In other words, he said, he's saying, I saved you, therefore now obey these commandments. It's not obey these commandments and I will save you, but rather it's 
I've rescued you, I've redeemed you, now therefore obey. That, that, that chronology is important. But also, in the book of John and in other places, Christ is, speaks of the law of Moses as if it is about him. So in John 5, 46, Jesus says, For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way in chapter 19, paragraph 7. None of the uses of the law are contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. We cannot abstract the law from Christ or a relationship with him. Are the Ten Commandments only found in Exodus and Deuteronomy? No, that is not true. They are, in fact, found throughout Scripture. Now here, I want to give some similarities with the very first covenant given with Adam. There are similarities. Now, substantially, they're different, but there are similarities. One similarity is this. In Genesis 1, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments through the fourth commandment are all about how we are to worship God. In other words, being made in his image, how are we to have a relationship with God? The fifth commandment and the seventh commandment are about marriage and family. Again, that goes back to the Garden of Eden, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, He created them male and female to be one flesh. The sixth commandment and the ninth commandment illustrate to us the preciousness of human life made in the image of God. The Eighth Commandment and the Tenth Commandment are about commands of labor, subduing the earth, taking dominion over it. So we see similarities with the very first words given to us, given to man by God. But we also find throughout the New Testament an expansion, or you might say an explication of the Ten Commandments. Jesus offers a commentary on the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. In some ways, you might say Jesus is the greater Moses who gives us a greater law and who rescues us and redeems us in a greater fashion. He says to the rich young ruler in Luke 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. He upholds the law, but he also, as we will see, he, he brings it to the heart, the heart level in a way that's more explicit, perhaps, than in the Old Testament. I could give you scripture references for the rest of the ten. I won't do that. But there you find the rest of the Ten Commandments within the New Testament. What's the point of all of this? What is the point, you might ask, of the Ten Commandments? Well, there are many different points. But clearly, one point is not simply that you, you change your behavior. Now, that is true. You are to change your behavior. But it's not meant that you 
rest in your doing or keeping of the Ten Commandments as if you could be right with God by what you do. That's not the point. C.E.B. Cranfield put it this way, Christ is the goal, the aim, the intention, the real meaning and the substance of the law. Apart from him, it cannot be properly understood. The Westminster Larger Catechism, I didn't read it, but question 97 asks what the use of, special use of the moral law to believers or to the regenerate are, and it answers this, that it is of special use to show us or to show them how they, may, they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness, to express the same in their greater care and com- conform themselves thereunto as, their, as the rule of their obedience. I appreciate that definition because it drives us to Christ. It roots the Ten Commandments for Christians in Christ. Now, having answered some of the general questions, let me give you five rules of interpretation. The Westminster Larger Catechism that we read gave, I think, eight rules. And these five are, in some ways, the summary of those eight. But here are the five. The first, biblical, first rule that you are to have when you read and begin to seek to obey the Ten Commandments is this, that every commandment has to be understood in the whole context of Scripture. If you remember the, the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. In other words, if you have a question about one of the commandments, then you should say, well, what does the rest of the Bible have to say about this particular commandment? You can't understand them in isolation. God is one. His word is consistent. He himself is consistent. Each one is, ex- is explained throughout Scripture. But also, you're not to take one and say, I-, I want to obey this one and not that one. You can't pick and choose. You have to have all of them. Many people would say, well, murder is wrong. I, I believe that's true. But the Sabbath? Sure. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing whatever you want on, the, on Sunday. People want to say that. But if you believe that murder is wrong, well... You have to also seek to uphold the Sabbath. James 2.10 says that for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. In other words, if you, if you break one, we're, we're breaking all in, in some way, in some measure. Here is an example of Scripture interpreting Scripture. The second commandment, the one on images, that commandment really gets expanded in the rest of Scripture, when not only the Old Testament, but also the New, speaks about idolatry. The prophets have a lot to say about, about the sin of idolatry. Jesus has a lot to say about the sin of idolatry. That sin is really rooted in a violation of the second commandment. So the first rule is the biblical rule. Every commandment must be understood in all of Scripture. But the second rule is what's called the inside-outside rule. Here's what we mean by that. That the Ten Commandments are not simply teaching that we are to behave in a certain manner. It's not only about what you do. The Ten Commandments reach the understanding, will, affections, and all other powers of the soul, as well as the words, works, and gestures. When Jesus talks about uh, the Seventh Commandment, In Matthew 5, 
he forbids not only adultery, but also any inappropriate lustful desires, any inappropriate thinking uh, concerning the relationship of marriage, okay? I could say more about that, but each commandment is going to the thoughts, intentions, desires of the heart. You can't simply understand it as behavioral prohibition. That's the second rule, the inside-outside rule. Every commandment reaches the, the will, the affections, and all other powers of the soul. The third rule is called the two-sided rule. Where a duty is commanded, a sin is forbidden, or where a sin is forbidden, a duty is commanded. There's always two sides. In other words, when it says you should not lie, it also means you should tell the truth. Okay? My favorite illustration of this is the prohibition against murder. The Westminster Larger Catechism, if you read it, is very expansive in what is prohibited and what is required. Let me read to you what the duties are required in the Sixth Commandment according to the Westminster Larger Catechism. The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies, lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any, and by just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, physique, sleep, labor, and recreations, and charitable thoughts, Love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceableness, mild and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. All of that is required in the command, you shall not murder. That's a lot. You wouldn't normally think how I eat meat relates to the Sixth Commandment. But the people who wrote the Westminster Confession thought so. And how you sleep, how you labor, these things are all related. The fourth rule is the rule of categories. So the third rule is a two-sided rule. You have to understand it's not only prohibiting something, it's requiring something of you. But the fourth rule is the rule of categories. By that, we mean that every command is covering an entire category of sin. It governs not only a particular sin, but all sins that are related to that. For example, God not only forbids the sin of idolatry, but any worship that is unlawful of him. Matthew 5.21, Romans 2.8. Or the seventh commandment forbids us not only from adultery, but any conduct that is sexually inappropriate or leads us to that. It, it means, in other words, that even non-physical intimacy, perhaps even emotional intimacy, would be forbidden uh, with anyone that is not your spouse, okay? There are other forms of intimacy that are also prohibited besides physical intimacy. Proverbs 5.8 speaks of the forbidden woman and says, Keep far away from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Don't even think about it. Don't even go near it. Don't knock on it. Don't think about it. Don't even go near it. 
because it's taking that command seriously. Finally, the fifth rule is the brother's keeper rule. The brother's keeper rule says this, that we must not encourage someone else to do what God has told us not to do. Okay? We must do everything in our power to help other people keep God's law. We have to be thinking about other people. As a, as a father, I have to be thinking about my children. Am I leading them in such a way that I am helping them to obey God's commandments? The negative example here, one negative example, would be in 1 Kings 12. Jeroboam is the king of Israel. It says that the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. He said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He made temples on high places and appointed priests among all the people who were not the Levites. Kings have responsibility under the brother's keeper rule to lead others in obedience to God's law. Another example would be Acts chapter 7 when the, the council uh, stoned Stephen. It says, they, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, when it says they laid down their garments at the feet, at the feet of Saul, what does that mean? It means that Saul was looking on and approving of what they were doing. He was not intervening or trying to prevent it. Parents, again, you have a huge responsibility in leading your children and influencing them over how they are to behave and think and act. It's a very sad story when you hear, I, I heard of this a lot when I was in Naples, Florida, but it's also true today. There are some who would sadly lead their children not only to sin, but even get them addicted to drugs. Imagine how terrible and awful a situation like that would be in which a parent would introduce their children to abusive um, substances that are addictive. Horrible, horrible thought. I will end the way I began. I don't want to take the Ten Commandments and abstract them from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's always the danger when you talk about the Ten Commandments, that someone thinks, oh, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good guy. I can keep them. No, <laughs> not. Here's the way I would summarize how we are to think about the Ten Commandments and really the entire Bible. The Bible is full of commands. This is what you must do. But the subtext, or maybe even the, the text, not even the subtext, is, but you can't do it. We're commanded to do things that we are unable to fulfill. But there is one who did. There is one who kept the law, who lived up to every single command. And he also died in our place for every single violation of the Ten Commandments that I have ever done, every sin was laid upon him. Every sin, if you have put your faith in him, every sin and every violation that you have committed against the Ten Commandments was laid on him at the cross. One by one, you might say. Every single one. This is what you must do, but you can't do it, but there is one who did. And you are to put your faith in the one who did. And through faith in him, through a relationship with him, walking with him day by day, week by week, 
year after year. He will enable you, by his Spirit, through your word, to begin to look like him, to change from the inside, to become a new person. You will never keep the commands perfectly. You won't. But you will make improvement if, by the Spirit of God, you are walking with the Lord. That's what I command you to do today. Put your faith and trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you are a holy God. Uh, you have given us your commandments, and they, they're like a mirror that show us the wickedness, not only of our outward behavior, but of our inward thoughts, affections, desires. We repent. We ask forgiveness for how deeply we have offended you. None of us here can keep your commands. All of us are guilty of breaking and violating each one of these. That's why we need the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have sent him, Lord, to live up to the demands of the law, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that you have ransomed us from slavery to sin, and through his shed blood on the cross, you freed us from the enslaving power of sin, You've forgiven us of the penalty of sin in Christ, and you are bidding us to live a life of devotion and love to you and to him. I pray that we would take that that relationship seriously, just as seriously as we would take the vows of our marriage relationship, in order that we might, over time, begin to be changed by your Spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.